שיעור מספר 188, מיסיס נימנובצקי, ארט אז פרשנות, מרדר אין דה מייקינג. and spent those Sundays, many of those Sundays perhaps, going to a museum, you know just how much art can impact on a person. What those museum trips might not have conveyed, though, is how much art can also impact one's understanding of Tanakh. Over the next hour, Emir Tashem, we're going to see how powerful a tool the visual arts can be for the study of Tanakh. <laughs> so. especially when used in conjunction with traditional Parshanut. Art, like Midrash, often highlights the ambiguities in a text, fills in the unknowns of the text, and in general serves as a really excellent foil through which to better closely read and understand the original. Today, we're going to explore together two stories from Sefer Brishit Parag Dalit, the stories of the first murders in In history. One is a really well-known story, the story of Cain and Hevel, and the second, a little bit less well-known story, the story of Lemach and his wives, a story that spans just two verses, but whose every word is enigmatic. We'll be looking at both stories through a selection of artwork, and as we said, also more traditional commentary, more traditional parshanut. And Amir Tarshem, at the very end, will devote a few minutes to trying to understand and see What is it that the visual arts can contribute to the study of Tanakh that perhaps more traditional Parshanut does not? This is going to be one class where instead of telling you to put away your phones, I'm going to actually encourage you to use your phones and follow along with me. Okay? We're going to be accessing all the art from a site called alhatorah.org. For people who are not familiar with the site, I'll tell you how to access it in a minute. You can ta- start taking out your phones as I introduce the site. Okay? Um, We're going to access the art through this website called alatorah.org. Much of the website is devoted to the study of Tanakh and Parshanut. And one of the things that it attempts to do is to give a multidimensional, multidisciplinary experience in learning Tanakh. Trying to get at Tanakh from all different types of aspects. So, for example, one part of the site... Here, let's actually look here. Is a traditional... with dozens of pshat commentaries, many of them critical editions based off of manuscripts. At the same time, the site also tries to get you to analyze things using a variety of tools. So for example, there's a one-click concordance. So for example, if I was going to touch on the word kaniti, you'll get a concordance and you could do a lexical analysis. Okay? If one had wanted to, there's also other tools, such as a newly developed part of the site, which is called Olam HaMikra, which incorporates all sorts of maps and images from the ancient Near East, trying to get a Tanakh from the perspective of realia. What was the time of Tanakh like? What do we know from ancient Near Eastern artifacts that can help us learn Tanakh? Another aspect of the site is what we call a Tanakh lab, which allows for literary analysis of the site. Okay? And so one might look at this and we analyze any single word that comes up. So for example, the word se'et, 
all of a sudden at sea, how many times does it appear in Tanakh? How many times does it appear in Arketa? What does that mean for me as far as literary analysis of Tanakh? So the point of the site is to get at all different aspects of the study of Tanakh. One of them, of course, the one that's relevant for us, is Parshanut and art together. And so what I am going to ask all of you to do so you can follow along looking at your computers is open Google alhatorah.org, A-L-H-A-T-O-R-A-H. Here, I'll show you one second. No space. Okay, alhatorah.org. Everyone see up there? On your phone, it's going to look slightly different. Okay. 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 Everyone have the... Okay, scroll down a little bit till you get to where it says Tanakh on a phone. It'll be the first bar. Press on that bar and you'll see topics. Everyone see where it says topics? Press on... Okay, you'll say... You got to Tanakh, press on Tanakh the arrow. Look at topics. Press topics. And you should see something that looks like this, but it's in a slightly different screen. Press on Parshanut in art. Okay, so everyone went to topics? If you press on that, there should be an EA, but there should be an, e, an EIN button for whoever wants to interface in English. Okay, so Okay, so everyone, everyone has org. Then you should go to where it says Tanakh. Press Tanakh, go to where it says the first button, open up the arrow, there's like an arrow, and go to where it says Iyunim, or topics. Then look for Parshanut in art. And you should see a page that has all a bunch of pictures. And go to Cain and Hevel. Everyone got that? Okay, so go to Cain and Hevel, swipe to the left, or the right, or whatever, swipe to the side, and you'll see the pictures. Okay. Does everyone have that? Okay, and everyone sees the pictures, Kain and Hevel? Use, if, you, if you're using your phone, you'll be able to blow them up as we go and look at each picture with all the details. That work? Okay, just raise your hands if you're still trying to find it. Okay. And then go to Cain and Hevel. See the pictures? Okay, swipe to the side if you're on the page and you don't see pictures. If you could swipe to the left and then you see the pictures. Or to the right. right. Or to the right. I'm not sure. One second. Swipe to, try each side. It's only going to work in one way. Exactly. Okay. I'm going to... I'm going to start, we're going to, we're going to be looking at the psukim. Somebody will be going around if they need any help. Sorry. Okay. Okay. The story, I think, shh. Okay. The story should be a familiar one. 
We're going to start with the psukim, which I put on the, on the screen. Anyone that wants to follow in a Tanakh, feel free, but you should have the psukim on the screen itself. Okay. We all know this story. Adam and Chava have two children, Cain and Hevel. All the psukim tell us about them, before we get to our actual scene, is their names and their professions. Cain is, as everybody knows, a farmer in Oveda Dama. Hevel is a roetzon, a shepherd. Verse 3 starts our story. After some time, Cain brings an offering from the fruit of his land as a minchat Hashem. And Hevel also brings a korban Hashem from the flat of his flock. Hashem accepts the offering of Hevel, does not accept the offering of Cain. Cain's face falls, as we see, he's very upset. Hashem asks him, Why are you upset? Why has your face fallen? This verse is probably one of the more enigmatic verses as far as its syntax and its lexical understanding. I'm going to just pick one potential understanding of the verse. Hashem tells him, if you improve, then you'll be able to lift up your face. When his face had fallen, you'll be able to look up again. And if not, then sin will lurk by your door and it will be for you a desire. But you may rule over it. Verse 8 moves straight into the scene of the murder. We don't get kind reaction to Hashem. He doesn't respond to Hashem. Instead, we get the next couple of verses which tell us the story of the murder itself. Cain tells Hevel, his brother, and this is where Tanakh is very frustrating because it doesn't tell us what Cain told his brother right before the murder. Instead, as they're in the field, Cain comes and kills Hevel, his brother. The next few verses move to the third scene of our story, the punishment and exile. Hashem tells, asks Cain, where, where's your brother? And as we all know, Cain responds, Hashomer achianohi, am I my brother's keeper? And then Hashem tells him that because of his actions, he will be cursed from the land. It will not sprout forth vegetation for him anymore. Navanad tia ba'aret, you will be a wanderer in the land. Vayomer Cain al Hashem, gadol avunim My sin, or perhaps my punishment, is too great to bear. That's our story. What we're going to do now is look at the art on that story and see what does it do with our story? What questions does it highlight? How does it retell the story? And how does it under- help us understand the story better? So if you're looking along, um, I picked three different depictions of our story. And if you click on any one of them, you'll get it in big on your phone and you can blow it up. Okay? We're start, I'm going I'm to go through each one quickly and then we're going to actually analyze each one individually. Okay? The first depiction, here, sorry. The first depiction on, the, on, on your left is from the Alba Bible. It's actually a fascinating story of how this was commissioned. This is one of the first translations of Tanakh into Castilian. And it was commissioned actually by a churchman who asked one of the prominent rabbis of the time to translate 
the Bible into Castilian. This was in the wake of several anti-Semitic acts, and he was hoping that the translation would help to heal the rift between the two communities. The rabbi at first is very hesitant because he says, when I produce all these Jewish interpretations of the text that don't work with Christian doctrine, I'm not going to be healing any rift. I'm going to be widening that rift. Um, nonetheless, he agrees. And so we have a depiction of, we have a translation into Castilian with a whole bunch of illustrations done by Christians, but according to Jewish interpretations. In this image, here, in this image, we see the three scenes. We see three scenes starting from the top and then moving down. The first scene is the two brothers offering their sacrifices. Hevel is on the left side, Cain on your right. He's bringing his sheep, he's bringing from his vegetation. Hashem very clearly accepts the offering of Hevel, turning his back literally on Cain. The bottom moves to the next two scenes. The scene of the murder itself, this is a very interesting depiction of the murder because what is Cain doing to Hevel? He's biting him to death. And his blood seeps seeps into the earth. The third scene is Hashem banishing Cain. That's our first depiction. Hashem changed his shirt. What? Yeah, that too. (laughs) Um, Our second depiction is from the Salerno Cathedral. It's a bunch, there were about 50 ivory plaques made for the cathedral, including images from both the Old Testament from Tanakh and also the New Testament. In our image here, the artist, this dates to about the 11th century, um, the artist also tells her story in three scenes, moving from left to right. Again, in the first scene, we have the offering itself. Two brothers looking almost identical handing up their offering to Hashem. Hashem takes his hand out and chooses Hevel. Move to the scene of the murder. This time he's not biting him to death, but trampling on him and, and strangling him. Interestingly, Hevel is looking back this way rather than at Cain himself. Third scene, Hashem's hand comes out to go and banish Cain, who is looking terrified, cowering in fright. Our third depiction... Is this? This is actually an ivory plaque. Ivory plaque. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is an engraving by Julius Schnorr von Karasfeld, which is part of a, of, of a Bible that has about 200 different engravings in it. It dates to the 19th century. And in the engraving, he portrays just one scene, the scene of the rejected sacrifice. In the foreground, we see a very pious-looking Hevel, who is looking up at Hashem, who the smoke clearly shows that his offering has been accepted, and he's clearly portrayed in his shepherd status. In the background, Cain stands next to his rejected offering with the collapsed smoke and his fruit on the bottom here, looking very, very upset, perhaps in a crouching position, not clear totally from the picture, if he looks like as if he's ready to throw a stone or something like that at his brother, Hevel. Those are our three depictions. Is the, is the last one that the entire work, artwork? That's the whole entire artwork, yeah, yeah. Um, and what did you say that was? A, this is an engraving. engraving. Okay. Perhaps, perhaps not surprisingly, when you look at artwork and compare them, it's the differences between the artworks that's most telling. Because the differences are going likely to be the places where each artist either veers from the biblical text 
takes a stance on something that's ambiguous in the original or fills in an unknown. So I want you to look at each of these three images. Feel free to you know, click back and forth on your phones as you do. And tell me, what differences do you note? Let's focus first on just the first scene, meaning on the scene of the offering of the sacrifice itself, ignoring for the moment the scene of the murder and the scene of the, rege- of the banishment of, of Cain. So focusing just on the sacrifice, people can raise hands, call out. What differences do you note in their depictions? Okay, different in the way that we're going to depict the nature of the brothers. Here, Hevel looks like a saint. He looks like he's extremely pious. That's absent from all of these pictures. In addition, do we even notice a difference between Cain and Hevel in the other pictures? Almost nothing. This Cain and Hevel are, might as well be identical twins. Okay? Okay, mirror image, identical twins, right? Okay? In this picture, we have pious versus non pious. Here, they're, again, in very similar poses, suggesting perhaps there's no difference between the brothers. Excellent. What other differences do you know? Okay. We have an altar in this picture, an altar in this picture. Here, they're offering up to Hashem, but just handing their offering to God. Great. Any other differences? Okay, there might be more action in the middle one where he's actively doing something, he's more actively doing something. Everybody else is sort of like a portrait within. Good. Okay, so very interesting how they decide to depict God. There's very anthropomorphic imagery in all of these. Here we have a hand, though, on this side, he obviously wasn't afraid to depict God as an individual. So that's an interesting thing to note. Okay, so God here is, uh, his hand is here, but it's only in the punishment that we actually see him. Good. Okay, a sign of the acceptance of smoke as opposed to God's hand coming out. How do we know that God accepted the offering? Okay, one other difference I think that's worth noting. Okay. In the middle one, they seem to be rivaling even before it happens, and his foot is that they're pushing against each other. And the other ones, they're ignoring each other or not looking at each other. So interesting. What's the relationship between the brothers before our story? Are they in combat already, standing here, facing each other, sort of in combat? Whereas here, each one's doing his own thing. Okay? The, uh, I don't know what the significance of that is, but the mizbachot of kind of evil are different colors in the first one. Right. Okay. One pink, one yellow. Make there be significance in that or not? We're not sure. Okay. One other difference worth noting is in the sacrifice itself. Yeah. Okay. Um, here, pretty equal size sacrifices. Here we have a nice fruit basket, which is visible on the side. Presumably it was a nice fruit basket, a nice sheep. Here, on the other hand, we have two sheep and a smattering of vegetation. So what does all of this amount to? So I think one of the biggest questions that many of us have when we read the story of Cain and Hevel is, why was one rejected and one accepted. That's a big unknown in the text. Hashem comes and accepts one, accepts the other, why not? doesn't accept the other, why not? And each of these artists, I think, responds to that question in a slightly different way. Starting from the middle one, who presents them as almost identical, he basically asks the question for us. He's telling his viewer, why? Look, they're no different. Why would Hashem accept one and not accept the other? And if you look on the source sheet, this is to some extent exactly the words that the Targum Yonatan puts into the mouth of Hevel right before the murder. Sorry, puts in the mouth of Cain right before the murder. 
So I put Targum Yonatan in, in a translation into Hebrew. It's originally in Aramaic. Vayomer kain el hevel achiv, bo v'nitzishninu lasadeh. Kain and Hevel talk to each other. Kain tells Hevel, let's go into the field. This is source number one. When they go into the field, Kain says to Hevel, I see that the world was created with, with mercy. But it is not led according to the fruit of one's deeds. There seems to be partiality in judgment. For why should your offering have been accepted and not mine? That's what the Salerno Cathedral artist is presenting. We did the same thing. And according to the Psukim, who brought the Korban first? Whose idea was it? Kain himself. Right? Why should I be rejected? That's what this artist is asking us, begging that question, why? What does this artist do instead? He answers the question. Okay? He says, well, why was your korban accepted and not mine? Because actually, our korban, we're not the same. You gave, a, Hevel gave a nice korban, I didn't. And this is found in several sources. I just brought it in the name of the Midrash Tanchuma, verse 2. So source 2. kain mi mahu. Min motar ma'achalo, from the leftovers of his food. The Rabbanan amru, zera pishtan and Chazal say that he brought from flaxseed. If that's the type of present that you're going to be giving, the leftovers, flaxseed, well then perhaps it's not so surprising that your kurban was rejected. The question, of course, though, is does the artist, does Chazal, have any basis for that in the psukim? What in the Psukim would suggest that the korbanot were not equal? Well, you get a special mention about what kind of son he gave, um, while Kain has no special mention. Good. So if you look in verse 4, the hevel hevi gamhum mi pchorot sono umichalvehan. By the sacrifice of hevel, we're given a description. What type of son, what type of sheep did he give? From the fat of his flock. He gave the choice of his animals. By Kayan, do we see any similar description? No. That absence, that lack of parallelism, leads both the Tanhuma and our artists to suggest that perhaps, really, the two were not identical. One was better than the other. And even Ezra says that explicitly. Look at verse 4. Sorry, source 3. <laughs> because it says by Kayan, from the fat of his flock, from the firstborn of his flock, Perhaps Cain did not. Okay? Okay, so one my question, Gamhu might add in that actually he also brought, and he was imitating his brother who brought a lovely one. Okay? Rav Yosef I didn't put this on the source, he brings a different actual, try, tries to bring another support. He says, the very fact that Hashem tells Cain what after, the, after he gives the offering if you improve, I had explained that before, if you improve, then I will forgive you, or then you'll be able to lift up your face. Rav Yosef Hoshor suggests that the word se'et is related to the word mas'et, which in Tanakh means a tribute or a gift. And so he says, perhaps what Hashem is saying, if you improve your gift, well then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Next time I'll go and accept you, and that might be another support for this reading. Okay? Mm-hmm. Moving to our third 
um, picture. How does he answer the question? How does um, Julia Schnorr answer our question? Okay. What, why is one accepted and one's not accepted? Because of the person. Not because of the sacrifice, but because of who they were. Okay? Hevel offering is accepted because Hevel was a good person. Cain's offering was not accepted because he was not up to par. Again, though, one has to question, is that just our artist's imagination, or is there some hint to that in the verses? Can anyone think of any verse that might support this reading? So, Bal Mecklenburg, the Tav Kabbalah, in our very next verse, in our very next source, verse um, source four, says exactly that. El hevel ve'el minchato, lo amar el minchat hevel. When the pasuk says that Hashem accepted the offering, it doesn't say that Hashem accepted the offering of hevel. It says Hashem accepted hevel and his offering. And so, Rav Mecklenburg reads into that a hint that actually the reason for the acceptance and rejection has to do with the people themselves. Rav Hirsch expands on this. I'm not going to actually read the whole source inside. That's the next source on this worksheet. And suggests that perhaps the only thing we actually know about the brothers besides our story is their name and their profession. And so he said, just look into their names and their professions and see, is there anything in those two things that might suggest that there was a difference between the two brothers? And he suggests that there's a very big difference between a farmer and a shepherd. A farmer has to put their all into working the land. Hashem's curse of the land, meaning after the chid of Etadat, meant that man has to toil and toil and toil in order to bring forth fruit. And he says, and what does that do to a person? That means that when you finally do get fruit, who do you attribute it to? To yourself. Farming leads you to be vain, arrogant, pride, forget about God, think about yourself. He moves on and he says, in addition it leads you to become very materialistic. Okay? And he says that's perhaps hinted to in the name Kayin, Koneh, acquisitions, Kinyanim. That the farmer, because he works so hard to bring forth, when he finally gets, he wants to get and get and get and spends his whole life until he's not an Oved Adama, but an Eved La Adama and becomes a slave to the, work, to, the, to the soil itself. And he moves on and suggests that this is perhaps the difference between Egyptian agrarian society and Am Yisrael, which started off with all our forefathers being shepherds. Okay? He says, a shepherd, by definition, spends his day caring for the other. Okay? And reflecting and maybe thinking about God. Someone who's a farmer, he suggests, thinks about themselves, not about God. And if anything, they come to worship nature. They come to enslave the other as they want more and more. So he suggests that's perhaps the difference. And perhaps that's why in Schnorr's picture, he doesn't just emphasize the difference in piety. He also emphasized that he's a shepherd, right? In our other pictures, we wouldn't necessarily know except for what they're bringing, but we're not emphasizing shepherd, staff, all your sheep on the side. He's emphasizing that because perhaps there's something in that choice of profession that belies something about who he is, okay? Second difference that you guys noted before is how did we know how that sacrifice was accepted, okay? Clearly, in this picture... There's smoke coming up, smoke coming down. One was accepted, one wasn't. Here, interestingly, they portray a very anthropomorphic depiction of Hashem coming out. Could that possibly have happened? Right? If, unless you believe in a corporeal God, that wouldn't happen. 
which of course just highlights again the question for us, well, how did the brothers know? Right? How do you know if your korban is accepted? In general, when people brought korbanot in the Beit HaMikdash, you wouldn't get a signal from God, I'm listening, I heard, I know, I'm answering, I'm accepting, or I'm rejecting. How did the brothers know? So most of our Mepharshim actually, like Schnorr, suggest that Hashem either sent fire down from heaven or somehow there was a pillar of smoke that came up, and so they knew. Rabag offers a really fascinating explanation, and this is source number seven. How do you know if your tefillot are accepted or not? So the truth is, we don't. But let's say I daven that I would win the lottery tomorrow, and I win the lottery tomorrow. How did I know if my tefillah was accepted? I got what I asked for. Okay? So if you get what you asked for, well, that might be a sign that Hashem is accepting your tefillah, accepting your korban. What Rabag suggests is, how did the brothers know whether or not their offering was accepted, this wasn't an in-the-moment, miraculous, you know, Hashem handing out his hands and, and accepting them. But rather, look, if you look inside, Rabag suggests, how did Hevel know that his offering was accepted? Because his work succeeded. Okay? Because his flock procreated and he had more and more. On the other hand, Because Cain saw that his land was not growing the fruits that he wanted it to grow. And the vegetation wasn't coming forth. And so apparently Hashem then didn't accept his offering. How does that reading change your perspective on the entire story? Okay, so first of all, timing. We tend to think that Cain and Hevel, uh, this whole story is happening within a span of a day, right? Cain feels rejected. He lashes out at Hevel. He goes and he kills him, and that's the end of our story. According to Rabag, how many months must have passed between the acceptance and the rejection? Okay, it's got to be seasons, okay? This isn't something that's happening right off the bat. It also suggests that we're supposed to be reading the way Hashem works in the world in a very different way. What's Cain upset about? Must all your tefillot be answered with a yes? Right? Hashem might have answered your tefillot and he said no. Okay? And in addition, he might just be saying, and this is, comes out of, that's part of the Rabag that I didn't bring you, is according to Rabag, most of the time the world does not run by individual divine providence, but rather by nature. And so it would be really hard to go and blame God every time that there's a drought, okay? Or that there just wasn't enough rain and so you didn't succeed on your test, you didn't succeed in your business or whatever. He says, not everybody merits divine providence every single second of the day, okay? And that's Rabag's philosophy, that most of the time the world is run by nature. And if you think about it, what's a riskier business, shepherding or farming? Farming. Farming. And so, yes, that's what happened. You chose a risky business. It doesn't always work. Okay? But that changes your perspective on, I think, the entire story. Okay? Okay. One last um, difference I wanted to note in this area was what people had noticed about the altars. Just quickly, I think it's a fascinating question. Did people think about using an altar from the very first moment in history? Right? Or is that something that actually developed along the way? We tend to be so... You know, programmed to think of korbanot together with an altar, but who said that it had to be that way? Okay, 
moving to our second scene, the murder itself. Okay? In this picture, the truth is, let's blow it up. Okay? We said we have this interesting depiction of him biting Hevel to death. Any hint in the psukim as to how this happened? So here, I think, is actually one part of our story where we don't have any clue in the text, and you can't base it on anything. And each one... Okay, so maybe that he's using his mouth, maybe. Um, it might be a little stretch. Um, but um, so the question is, so what is the artist trying to portray in the way that he chooses to have Cain kill Heaven? So one of the things I noted, and I'm not sure whether this was the intention of the artist or not, you have him biting Hevel to death, but look at the pose. What's Cain doing simultaneously to Hevel? They're embracing each other, right? This is Cain hugging Hevel at the very moment that he's killing him. And I think that sort of highlights what violence in the family is so often like. There's a love-hate so intricately tied together, right? The person who hurts you the most is the person who you love the most, okay? And that might be part of the message that he gets in trying to depict the murder in that way, okay? Okay, so right, so maybe the emphasis on achiv right in that in that pasuk. Okay, in the second image here, we have a very different depiction of the murder, with Cain sort of needing to stamp on top of Hevel before he kills him. Perhaps that needs to put you down. Okay. Cain has been feeling rejected, so what do you need in order to reassert yourself? I need to be on top. Okay? In addition, one of the things that's fascinating is not just what Cain's doing, but what Hevel's doing. Okay? Hevel's facing this way, okay? and his face is this mixture of horror and also puzzlement. And part of you feels like, what's Hevel questioning? He's saying, but what did I do? I didn't reject you. I didn't do anything to you. It was God who rejected you. Why are you taking it out on me? Now, again, that's the most human reaction in the world. You don't necessarily take out your being upset at the person who rejected you. It might be at the person who you're jealous of for being rejected instead of. And that's really very natural. But that might be what Hevel's questioning here, looking back at the original scene. Oh, maybe saying, where's Hashem to save me? Interesting. Good. Right, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he's just overpowered. Okay, <laughs> right, maybe. Okay, one last picture, one last thing to, to note in, in this story, and then we're going to move into our second story, is the rejection and banishment itself. Okay? Here we have this really fascinating picture of the banishment, because look at Hashem's hand, contrasted for a second with the Alba Bible. Okay. In the Abba Bible, Hashem points this way as if to say, go. In the Salerno Cathedral, on the other hand, what's Hashem doing? Like reaching in as if to take him, not banishing him. And I think that raises a really important question, an interesting question, about the nature and purpose of punishment. Is punishment just vengeance? Or is punishment also a way of finally affecting a reconciliation? You need to be punished, but the point is what's going to happen after that punishment. And it's interesting that Cain, who so craved Hashem to be accepted, when Hashem finally turns to him, and look, Hashem here is turning to him, full body Hashem. 
right? Here it was just his hand, as, as we noted beforehand. And if anything, this hand actually, going back to the idea that it was arbitrary, it's as if like Hashem just closed his eyes, put out his hand and said, oh, which one am I going to pick, right? Here, Hashem is actively coming and talking to him. And that's something that actually is really true in the Psukim. Because who gets to talk to God in Paragdalid? Only Kayin, right? Kayin speaks to Hashem, or Hashem speaks to Kayin a few times. Hashem tells him, Hashem tells him, Hashem has a bunch of conversations. Most of us don't get any of those, okay? And this is Hashem sort of inviting Kayin back at the very same time that he's punishing him. This one? Yeah. This one? Yeah. Mm. Oh, this hand. Yeah, he's holding a book. Is it a dagger? I thought it's a book. Okay, that's interesting. I, the truth is, I'm not so sure what it is. We'd have to. I, I don't. I can't blow it up anymore. I'm not sure what it is. If it's a dagger, then that might be sending a different message. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Year. This. This is. Um. This is 11th century. So early. Okay. Okay. It's not a book. Okay. I don't know what it is, but I'm not. It could be a staff. It could be the top of anything. It's a little hard to tell. Just a quick question with the Ralbach, his interpretation that things happen through nature. Right. At that time, there were miracles going on all the time. Like, that may be a message for today, but like, how do you see out the time? Hashem was openly doing For sure, Hashem's opening doing miracles. The question is whether Hashem openly does miracles for individuals. Right? There's a big difference between what he's doing for Am Yisrael and what Hashem would be doing for individuals. Okay? Um, one last little thing. First question. It's an interesting question. I actually have no idea. I mean, if, the, if he was working off a translation into Latin or whatever, I have no idea. I don't speak Latin, so I wouldn't know how ambiguous a word it is to translate. I don't know. Right. right. It could be. It could be totally that. He's saying, by Yakum, he's actually standing up and coming on top of him. Okay. Um, one last little point. When I was speaking about the mode of murders before, one of the other things that people question when they think about the various possibilities, did he throw a stone, did he stomp him to death, is... Was this intentional or not? Okay. When you read the story, what's your impression? How many people think it's intentional? That kind on purpose meant to kill him. How many people think it might be unintentional? Okay. So the truth is, it's possible, especially for people who are not taking a choking to death type of approach, but like that he was throwing a rock or something like that, that he meant to hurt his brother, but not to kill him. And perhaps having never seen a dead person before, you don't necessarily know what it is that will kill a person. He's probably seen dead animals, right? But how many people are around to have seen a dead person? There isn't, okay? This is the first dead person in the world. He might not have known. What in the text might support the fact that this was a harigabishogeg, an unintentional killing? What's his punishment? Okay, navanad is the punishment of exile, is the punishment you give for an inadvertent killer and not for an intentional killer. If someone wanted to take the approach that he was an intentional killer, why nonetheless might Hashem not have killed him in, instead? Uh, so exactly. So Radak actually suggests that, that really he might have been intentional. Why does Hashem decide not to punish him with death? Because if he did, there wouldn't be anybody left in the world.
Okay. <laughs> well, that too. Um, okay. But this is God, so it might be different. Um, so, I, I'll get last question. That's interesting. So maybe this is an imitation of what he's used to when he wants to come kill his brother. Okay. Oh, Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I'd have to think about that and see if there are any other parallels between the two stories and what one can make of it. I assume one of the reasons he chooses this mode of of death is because what does Hashem tell Cain about the blood of Hevel? Right? That the blood is crying out from the ground. So he kills him in a way that the blood seeps into the ground so that we know that there was that type of of a death. Strangling wouldn't lead to any bleeding. Right? So he's looking for a mode of murder which would lead to blood coming in and reading that very literally, that his literal blood is crying out from the earth. I have no idea if there's a parallel to that Yosef story. Okay. I didn't try to put any, what the time frame of this one, but is there any reference to, you know, blood libel? This is 11, this one, this is, actually, this, this is actually in the middle of lots of anti-Semitic acts. I don't know exactly a blood libel or not. It's in the 15th century um, and I don't know exactly blood libels, but for sure anti-Semitic acts. I'm not sure if that was in his head because he's making this in order to um, make less of a rift between the two communities. So probably wouldn't want to be hinting to something like that. Okay? Okay. Last comment. Uh, we really don't know the quality of each of the, of the, of the korbanot. Um, the, the, first of all, the success of a farmer is, is an input to the results of a cattle breeder. If, or did he give him weeds? Did he give uh, fruit? Good, right. So that was one of the things that I think came out in the first um, artwork that we so saw. That's his guess. Okay, it's right. So, so the... Oh, sorry, this was up. Um, that over here, one wonders... If this is showing him that he's on purpose giving a lesser quality, but as you said, it might also be, well, I can only give what I have. What if he didn't have good quality fruits and vegetables? Well, then he would have to give a poor quality fruits and vegetables. So even if you say that he gave a poor quality, one doesn't need to blame him for that. Okay? That's our first story. Um, hopefully that gave you a lot to think about. I want to move to a second story since we don't have that much time left. The story of Lemach and his wives. So... If you want to follow along here, let's actually, probably the easiest way to get to it, everyone see the search button right on top? Right. Okay. Right on the right-hand corner, there should be a search button. Just type in Lemech, and you should see, or start, L-E-M-E-K-H. You should see, come down, Lemech and his wives in art. Does everyone see that? Okay, if not, you'll just follow along with me. It'll be fun. Okay. This story takes place just a few verses 
after the story of Cain and Hevel. In the middle, we have a genealogy list, which takes us from Cain to his sixth, descend, I mean, sixth um, generation descendant, which is Lamech. In the introduction to our story, as opposed to just giving us a straight genealogy, we're told a little bit about Lamech. We're told that Lamech fathered three children, each of which contributed somehow to society. His first child was Yoshev Ohel Umekneh, meaning that he somehow contributed in the area of shepherding. His second child, Yuval, was Avi Koltofes Kinor Vuugav, was somebody who introduced maybe music into the world or some type of musical instruments. And finally, Tzila Gamhiyadat Tuval Kayin, Lotish Kohoresh Nechoshet Uvarzel, he was someone who worked in metallurgy. That's sort of the immediate context of our story. This is Perek Dalad and Sefer Brishit, Psukim Yudtet through Chav Gimel. Okay? We're going to uh, through Chav Dalad. Okay? The story itself is just two verses long, Chav Gimel and Chav Dalad. Vayomer Lemech Lenashav. Lemech tells his wives, now remember, right before this, all we know is that he fathered three children who did those different contributions to society. And then we're told, Adavitzila Shman Koli, this is the first case of biblical parallelism in the sense of poetry in Tanakh. He tells his wives, listen to me, listen to what I have to say. Now this is a very enigmatic statement and depending on how you punctuate it and what tone you attribute to it, you will translate it slightly differently. He seems to be saying, because I have killed a man for my wounds and a yelled and a child for my bruising. Okay. The next passage says, Some comparison is being drawn between himself and Cain. Again, not exactly clear what type of a comparison. Sevenfold was be avenged Cain, 77-fold Lamech. What do you make of a story like this? Okay. So almost every single part of the story raises questions. Okay. From the beginning, we are told that each Habakti and we're questioned, who are we talking about? What's the context of this murder? What are the circumstances? Why is he sharing it with his wife? If he's sharing it because he's upset about it, is he sharing it because he's proud of it? Okay? Is he saying this in a tone of arrogance? Is he saying this in a tone of like utter anguish? We have no idea. Tanakh doesn't give us any punctuation marks. And some people read this as a question. Have I killed a, a, a man? Have I killed a child? Simple reading of the text, how many people were killed? Anyone disagree? What case can you make for one? This is biblical parallelism. In biblical parallelism, we might just be doing poetic language where we repeat something and really we just mean he killed one person, okay? Or he's questioning killing one person or whatever it is, okay? I think another important question is why is the story in Tanakh at all? It doesn't go anywhere, okay? There's no continuation to it. We never hear from Lamach again. Why in the world are you telling us this? You're stopping this genealogy list to share this with me and I don't have a background and I don't have a context and I don't have a continuation. Why is it important for the reader to know, Okay? If you were an artist, what do you think you would do with this? <laughs> I would take a little bit of that. Okay. okay. One of the things that I think one of the, this is one of the things I want us to get a, from, from artwork is an artist is forced to make decisions. If you're depicting this, you have to decide how am I reading this? Is this one body? Is this going to be two bodies? Or is this a question then there's going to be no bodies? Is this anguish or is this defiance? And somehow you might want to answer that question, and why am I including this in Tanakh at all? So what I brought for you 
is okay four artworks. Um, but again, swipe to the left if you're looking on the phone. Okay. 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 With the truth, we only have about like. 10, 15 minutes left, so we're going to go through each one. And one of the things that's fascinating about this selection of artwork is that the artwork is so different from each other. I'm just going to show you really quickly, and then I'm going to go into each one in depth. Okay? The bottom corner here is Alexander Master, who shows Lemach as a hunter with two dead bodies, an elder person and a younger person. To some extent, reading it much more simply, how he's understanding the fitzi and the chaburati, we're not sure. Okay, but he makes a hunting scene. Okay, if you move up, and the truth is, this I'm gonna <coughs> one sec. Hold, I don't know how to work this. We're not gonna do that. One second. He told me how to do this, and I don't remember. No, no, I actually want to move to the next thing because I can forget it. We're not gonna do this. Okay. Sorry. Okay. No, I just wanted to blow up the picture because it's not going to be blown up here. If you're using your phone, blow it up on your phone and expand it and you'll see. This lemach is a picture of anguish. Okay? People in the back probably can't see his, his, his face so much, but look on your phones. We have a mask of horror. Okay? Adda and Sila, his two wives, are hugging each other for comfort. Dead body, just one, on the floor. A very different depiction. No hunter here, no two dead bodies, full of anguish. Okay? Okay. This is Julia Schnorf, the same artist as our pious Hevel picture from beforehand, also an engraving. Here, you see a lemach holding a dagger or a sword, running home, sort of in defiance, proud of whatever he has just done, with all of his family around, admiring him for his victory or whatever it was that he had just done. Okay? Very different depiction. Until finally, the last one, which is, seems humorous, and to some extent you might question how this has anything to do with our story. We have Lamech in the middle, Ada and Sila on the sides, basically pulling on his hair and tormenting him. Okay? Now, if you had to pick one of the four, which do you think best fits the psukim? Okay, show of hands, Alexander Master, this one. Okay, show of hands. Okay. Anguished Lemach. Okay, that's most. Okay. Um, defiant Lemach. Okay. And last, um, our harried Lemach, tormented Lemach. <laughs> one in the back. Okay. Um, fascinatingly, every single one of these depictions is reflected in our traditional parshanut as well. Okay? Alexander Master, who portrays Lamach as a hunter, is probably basing himself off a very famous midrash, which might have even been known in the Christian world, so the fact that he's not a Jewish artist doesn't necessarily matter. If you look at the very first source under where it says, Sipur Lamach Benashav, source number nine, the Ketzad Neherad Kain, Lamach ben bino hayashvi lidoro v'sumahaya. They present a blind Lamach, he went out to hunt and his son was holding his hand. Whenever his son would see an animal, he would tell Lamach, there's an animal because Lamach is blind, and therefore he would then know to shoot. And he says, He tells him, I see an animal. 
He pulls his arrow, and it turns out that that animal wasn't an animal, but Kayin, because according to Chazal, what was that sign? Perhaps a horn on his head. Okay? Then, Lamech is so upset that he has just by accident killed his ancestor that, uh, go to the next line, Amar Lamach, Oy li haya, sorry, lizikinihu. He claps his hands in regret and squashes his son. Okay? This is a very famous midrash, but it's also a very bizarre midrash. Okay? Because what in the world would lead you to make a lamach be a hunter who is blind? Where in the world is that coming from? And what is it attempting to do with our story? So he's probably basing this off that same idea. This is his son. This is the kayan that he killed by accident. And it's a little hard to tell if he's blind or not in the picture. Um, James Kogel, in an article about this story, suggests that actually the blind motif might come from the words, ki'ish haragti lefitzi. Okay? What is lefitzi? For my wounds. I killed someone because of my wounds, because of the fact that I couldn't see. And he suggests that that motif of a blind lemach is embedded in that difficult phrase of lefiti l'chaburati, and that, and he's not the only one who says this, but most people suggest, what is the point of the story, including the story in Tanakh? Tanakh is including the story not because of what it teaches us about Lamach, but because it's the conclusion to the Cain narratives. Cain finally got his due, he was finally killed. That's one way of reading our story. But I, I'm, go ahead. He also knows he did something wrong, so it's a development. For sure, we're progressing, right? We're yeah, going to think, and, and, and th- that leads us straight into William Blake, who looks at this story and says, this is about somebody who killed someone, but it's not about the killing itself, it's about the aftermath of the killing. And this, too, might be a, pro- a continuation of the kind story, but in a very different way. One of the questions we always ask is, does violence beget violence? Right? Did Cain become a murderer? And does that mean that somehow his descendants are doomed to repeat history and also become murderers? Well, we have Lemach, yes, killing, but Lemach has anguish and regret over the killing. And in the picture, it's unclear who this dead body is. Is it a relative? The fact that Adan Tila are hugging each other in comfort might mean that he accidentally killed a relative, someone who's close to him. Or maybe he even intentionally killed someone. But... He's feeling regret. He's not saying, Gadol avonim and so, my, sin is, my punishment is too great to bear. I can't stand it. He's saying, my sin is too great to bear. He's saying that, Ish haragdi lefitzi, this is Sforno on the story, I killed a man and it will be a wound for me forever and forever. How am I ever going to get past this? I'm not going to be able to. It's going to always be something that causes me pain. Okay. The truth is, I think this is stands on its own. I'm not 100% sure if this was part of the series. As far as I know, it was an individual piece that, that William Blake made. Okay. Our third scene okay, is Lamach, made by Julius Schnorr, which matches, interestingly, a more modern commentator, Professor Casuto um, from the 20th century, who suggests that actually our story is about a Lamach who does kill intentionally 
and yes, he moves beyond Cain because he's so proud of it. Okay? And he suggests this is a story that's actually not the conclusion to the Cain stories, but what story comes right after our story? Think, and, and this is an introduction to the story of the Mabul. This is an introduction to the story of the violence where society is that's going to lead to a mabul. When we have a society where everybody is so excited about the fact that they killed, so ex- proud of the fact and defiant, well then, the next thing that we need to have is a mabul to wipe out such a society and start afresh. Okay? One last reading of our story. Okay? It's a somewhat humorous um, reading of our story. Rav Yosef Karas suggests that our story should be read as Lamach questioning. Did I kill someone? What's he questioning? He has a polygamous marriage. And his wives are driving him crazy. And he says, why are you driving me crazy? I didn't kill someone. Do I deserve this? I don't deserve such a life. And what Rav Yosef Kara suggests, and this is source number um, 12, Okay, that the Valalandinu Shaluyer Be Adam Nashim Kihik Tata Umriva. For him, the entire point of the story is to teach us that don't have many wives, it's only gonna just cause you saras. Okay? Uh, I personally don't feel that that would be, that Tanakh would actually be doing that, especially considering that if you read the rest of Sefer Brishit, everybody marries many wives. And yes, they are a source of friction, but it'd be odd to sort of get that point across through this minor character back in Paragdalid. One last way to read it, even though this sort of presents this as humorous, but the idea that actually Adensia might have been tormenting Lamech and that Lamech is asking, did I kill a man, is actually another valid reading of the story presented by Ramban. Ramban reads our story on the backdrop of the immediate context of his sons creating <coughs> metallurgy. His wives turn to him. Here, we'll read a little bit inside. Do we have time? Um, yeah, okay. His wives turn to him and he says... Um, Go to the second line. The Hayu Nashav Mipachdot Shalogianish Kihivi Hacherev Vaharitzicha Baolam. His wives turned to him after he helped his sons introduce metallurgy, introducing with metallurgy sword and spears and weapons, and say to him, You're going to be punished. You just introduced a means of killing into the world. And Lamech turns to his wives and he says to them, What are you talking about? My ancestor, Cain, killed. He didn't need a weapon. A weapon doesn't necessarily mean killing. Technology doesn't have to be bad. It's what you do with it. Okay? Guns, well, no, swear to, guns don't kill. He's not saying that it doesn't kill, but what he's suggesting is, I introduced metallurgy. You can use metallurgy for good or you can use it for bad. The choice is up to you. Okay? We have five minutes. I just want to tie both of our stories together and then end with a couple minutes about um, art as, as a whole. Um, I think one of the messages of both of our stories can be encapsulated in a little piece written by John Steinbeck. So a retelling, not a visual retelling, but another retelling of the story of Cain and Hevel in East of Eden. At one point in the story, if you never read the book, I recommend it, but it doesn't matter. He has his... He has his characters study the story of Cain and Heva. And they pick up on that one 
phrase where Hashem turns to Khan and says, In Titiv Seit, the Motitiv La Petachatat Lovitz, the Edachatishukato, Vatatim Shabo. And he questions, What does the word Vatatim Shabo mean? And so he has. East of Eden. Okay? So he has his characters compare three different translations. And he says, the American Standard translation suggests that, um, that, you, that you must triumph over sin. Atatim Shabot, you must overrule sin. He says that the King James translation says, thou shalt. And so he explains. Don't you see why this is important? The American Standard translation orders men to triumph over sin. And you can call sin ignorance. The King James translation makes a promise in thou shalt meaning that men will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word timshol, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says the way is open. That throws it right back on man. For if thou mayest, it also is true that thou mayest not. Don't you see? Yes, I see, I see, said the people who are listening to him. But, but you don't even believe that this is divine. Why do you think it's so important? Acidly, I wanted to tell you this for a long time. I even anticipated your questions, and I am well prepared. Any writing which has influenced the thinking and the lives of innumerable people is important. There are many millions in their sects and churches who feel the order do thou and throw their weight into obedience. And there are millions more who feel predestination and thou shalt. Nothing they may do can interfere with what will be, but thou mayest. That makes a man great. That gives him stature with the gods. For in his weakness and his filth and his murder of his brother, he still has the great choice. He can choose his course and fight it through and win. Think that looking at both of our stories, this is part of the message that Hashem is giving us. We have a story where Hashem rejects Cain, and we don't know why. But maybe the point is because it doesn't really matter. The question is, what do you do with that rejection? Do you use that rejection to go and get mad and jealous and angry and lash out at your brother? Or do you use that rejection to do self-reflection and improve yourself? Okay? Yes, man might create metallurgy. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's what you do with it. You can choose to use it for good things or you can choose it to use it for bad. Does violence beget violence? Not necessarily. You could choose to go and make Schnorr's defiant lemach, or you could choose to have Blake's anguish lemach. The choice is up to each individual. Okay? So just for the last minute or so, to give you a little bit of um, summary as to what are some of the ways in which art can contribute to the study of Tanakh that maybe traditional Parshanut cannot. One, even though it's trite, a picture is worth a thousand words. Okay? Instead of reading... 30 lines of Ramban in order to get your interpretation of the text, you look, you have an impact, you have an impression, you have answers to five different questions all at one glance. Second, art is not a commentary. Art is a retelling, and with a retelling, a re-experiencing. And because of that, it serves as a foil to the text in a way that regular Parshanut cannot. Okay? You're comparing a story with a story, and that reads a little bit more like Midrash. Third, art supplies details and embellishes the text because an artist is forced to make decisions. If I want to depict a Moshe, I have to decide how old he is. 
right? Was Moshe 20, 30, or 70 when he killed the Egyptian? Are our Cain and Hevel young kids or are they adults when this is happening? Is this the rashness of youth or not? You have to make that decision even though Tanakh doesn't say it. Okay? And finally, emotions. Okay? Even though it's true a written word can get across emotions, most of our biblical commentators do not naturally address the question of emotions all the time. They can, but it's not the norm. In art, again, you don't have to, but again, it's the norm, not the exception. So with two suggestions for everybody as we leave, next time you all open up a Tanakh and start learning a story, whether you're an artist or not, try to depict it and see what it does for your understanding of the story. How does it highlight questions for you? How does it answer questions? What stance are you taking as you read? And then go and explore your Parsha name and see, do they say the same thing? Do they agree with you? Do they disagree? What makes them say what they say? Finally, anyone that's interested in more examples of art in Parshanut, the Alatara site has a whole bunch, so feel free to explore. And if you want to write a topic, we invite you to. Could you please speak on the